I'm Debbie. I'm the founder and editor of Mislexia. Um, it's a magazine for women writers. I don't know how many of you are subscribers, but if you'd like to find out more about the magazine, there are leaflets outside. My colleague Anna will talk to you, and I'll be there to talk to you most of the morning afterwards. So do come and have a chat if you're any kind of a writer and a woman, or if you know a writer who's a woman, do come and have a talk. Um, if you're a poet and you'd like to read your work at Ledbury, Fest at Ledbury Festival, you'll find an interview with um, director Chloe Garner in the latest issue, which I'm going to hold up here as well. So thanks for talking to me, Chloe. Um, and it tells you how to get involved in the festival. And um, it's, it, it's, a, it's a feature called Getting a Gig, um, which explains how to get involved. It's one of many features in the magazine where we interview people giving grants, judging competitions, setting up writers' residencies, as well as agents and editors, about how to take your writing to the next le level. Um, Miss Lexia also publishes original fiction, poetry, and journalism by women. In fact, there are 14 different ways you can submit to the magazine. Um, so there's probably a slot in there somewhere that matches your kind of writing. So do, do take a look at the magazine. Um, and if there's nothing there for you, um, we also run a listing of over 100 new writing opportunities in every issue. And subscribers also receive a monthly email supplement full of writing jobs, news, competition deadlines and writing prompts. Um, so we, as I say, there's uh, leaflets and sample magazines outside, so take a look. We also run four major competitions for women writers every year. And our unpublished women's novel competition is running now, with a visual aid, with a first prize of £5,000, and all the finalists are invited to meet editors and agents at a special networking event in London. And large numbers of them have found representation and been published as a result, so it's not only the winner who wins. Um, and uh, we recently published our first physical book, which is this, um, which is the reason we're here today, really. Um, the Kindly Gnomes at the Arts Council paid for the research for this book, which is called Indie Presses, and the Mislexia Guide to Small and Independent Book Publishers and Literary Magazines in the UK and the Republic of Ireland. Um, Indie Presses, it says, is a comprehensive catalogue catalog of more than 400 independent literary presses operating right now. 400. So if you're wondering where to submit your poems or short fiction, if you've completed a pamphlet or full-length collection, or a novel, biography or memoir that you'd like to see published, this guide gives you all the information you need. And it really does this nothing like this anywhere else. And it was a real labour of love, actually. Uh, we're really proud of it. Um, I've said all that now. Anyway. <clears throat> so, we're here to talk about independent presses and also celebrate them, really. Um, independent publishers, um, they publish work they love and believe in. And this means that uh, they provide a really important service, both to literature and to writers. They take risks on new writers and on style and on subject matter. And in this way, they're like uh, the Amazon rainforest, really, sort of uh, nurturing 
new things and things that would otherwise die out Nearly and extinct. feeding what? Nearly extinct. <laughs> Nearly extinct. But also feeding feeding kind of fresh life and DNA into the whole body of literature. Um, for novelists they're a stepping stone to the big time and a confirmation of our worth if we're rejected by big publishers. And for poets and short story writers, they are literally the only game in town. Um, now and then, a book from an independent press catches the public imagination and becomes a bestseller. But in general, running an independent press is not a good way to make money, as I'm sure we all would agree. So the majority are subsidised hugely by the free labour and commitment of those who run them. Um, the three people on this stage with me are some of the most influential people in the poetry world, and they're heroes and her heroines, and um, so I, mean, I think we're really grateful to have them. I'm very grateful that they exist. I'm <laughs> um, going to start with Luke Allen of Carcanet Books. Uh, Luke's the managing editor of Carcanet, which... Um, has one of its poets shortlisted in every category of this year's Forward Prize, um, including Sinead Morrissey uh, for Best Collection, and she's judging the entries of Miss Lexia's poetry competition right now, as we speak. Um, Carcanet's one of the biggest publishers of poetry books and produces the leading poetry magazine, PN Review. It also manages no less than, I didn't realise this until I did the research for this, 16 other imprints and enterprises including the small, mighty comma press. Is this true? It's a kind of uh, friendly relationship rather than us managing. The, so you're just using the kudos yeah. of comma to stick on your website? We, uh, is that the we idea? help them with, <laughs> with uh, distribution. Okay. Um, in addition to all of this literary activity, in his spare time, Luke himself is the editor or co-editor of three additional poetry magazines. Um, Butcher's Dog is for Emerging Poets, Pain or Pain? Pain. Pain. <laughs> it's for <laughs> essays, interviews and reviews as well as poetry. And Quaite? Quaite. Quaite. Devotes each issue to a different poetic form. Um, what this amazing diversity proves is that whatever kind of writing you do, there's going to be an independent press out there somewhere for you. There really is. They're really in individual, maverick editors out there so whatever you do there'll be somebody there and they'll be listed in here that's the best way to find them um, interesting fact about Luke his recent poetry pamphlet minimum soft exchange includes a se selection of die coats which are minimalist two word poems and a sequence of circular poems that require you to rotate the page and read or read upside down um, there's also a found poem that consists of three categories of tickets available on the Edinburgh buses. Oh, respect. <laughs> uh, Luke, can you tell us about something you've published recently at Carcanet? Um, yes, thank you. I actually brought along Sinead's uh, oh, brilliant. new collection, um, which, as you mentioned, is up for the Forward Prize this year. Um, uh, we were asked to bring something that was representative of, our, of, a, of the books that we do and of the processes that we go through with each book. Um, and I suppose Sinead's is, is that. This is her fifth, I think, Carcanet collection. I should have thought of that already. I think it's her fifth. Um, 
the last one was Parallax in 2013. So this comes uh, a few years after. So I think we received a manuscript for this about two years before publication, or at least a draft of it, and received the finished uh, manuscript probably a year before publication. So as you can see, the, the time frames are quite, quite large. Um, the editing probably started uh, you know, nine months uh, before publication, and that's just a case of receiving her Word document, uh, reading it, highlighting issues, making suggestions, so kind of developmental editing, which even the very established poets like Sinead uh, hopefully appreciate, but also I think just need and uh, benefit from. Um, the, uh, that might take a few months of back and forth uh, versions of a manuscript that then might go to a proofreader, uh, sorry, a, a typesetter who will uh, lay out the first proof and uh, then go to the author again, uh, who will read and find problems with the proof, make a few small edits, hopefully nothing major, um, and uh, work our way to a final PDF version, which then goes to the printer. And so this is all happening, begins about two years before when we receive the manuscript and ends a few months prior to publication when it needs to go to the printer and have time to be distributed before it's officially available to buy in, in shops. In my case, I actually do the typesetting and design of books myself at the same time as editing for a lot of the Carcanet list. We do about 40 books a year, and arguably it's a, some would find that a bad way of doing things because editing and typesetting and designing perhaps should be separate entities or separate tasks, but I think increasingly you find in smaller publishing houses that the editor and the designer and the uh, director are all uh, conflated into one to one role. So that was the case with this book. Um, That's interesting, because you design your covers as well, don't you? With Pamela, yes. Yeah. But I do all yeah. the typesetting too. Yeah. yeah. I don't do the typesetting. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, small presses. That's the good thing about them. You get to wear all the hats, so you get lots of experience. Mm -hmm. But it's also the bad thing, because yeah. you have to do everything. You like... It might be that you, you miss things as a designer or miss things as an editor because you're trying to read with two types of consciousness at the same time. You've, you've been revamping your cover design, so haven't you? That, that's your baby. Your... Yeah, mm. yeah, it's a work in progress because, mm. like I say, it's, it's 40 books a year. It's hard to do everything for every book. I remember Carcanet used to be criticised by having incredibly small print on very creamy pages. It's still quite small, isn't it? It's 10.5, I think. 10.5. Um, it's 10 one of the smaller on 13, I think. 13. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, sure. that's just, just, just thought. Um, uh, I'll well, get uh, these pulled straight away. <laughs> no, 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 it's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. I just wondered, I haven't, I haven't no, seen no. it. Um, uh, the, Amy, on my right, is the editor of Seren Books. Seren is Wales' leading independent literary publisher. Seren means star in Welsh, and many of their books have been shortlisted for and won major literary prizes across the UK and America. Seren also produces the literary magazine Poetry Wales, which is quite, this is quite common that a book publisher is also running a magazine. Um, and the magazines often feed people, poets, into the 
the book publisher so that a poet might be spotted in the pages of a magazine and then go on to have a collection um, published by the same publisher. Amy's been editing the poetry list since 1992 and her poets include well-known people such as Sheena Pugh and Pascal Petit, Petit as well as younger award-winning um, poets Owen Shears and Catherine Gray. Amy's a passionate champion of women poets, and for many years she was the only woman editor of a major poetry list in the UK. And she's also been the judge of Miss Lexia's annual poetry pamphlet competition since it started. Um, the poem Howlet from Yvonne Reddick's winning entry last year had everyone in our office in tears when we published it last year. Just fantastic. fantastic. Um, interesting fact about Amy, her poem about Buddy Holly won a major competition whose prize included having lunch with Paul McCartney. <laughs> Can you tell us about a book you've published recently? Yes, hi. First, I want to say something nice about the other publishers. Because yes. as, as a, I think you, don't, you only go into publishing because you're a passionate reader. And these little poetry presses have, like, sustained me my entire reading life with very intelligent, absolutely beautiful books. And there's this kind of peculiar crossover between us all like, some of my writers have moved to Carcanet, some of my writers have moved to Bloodaxe. Occasionally, one of them will come over to me from one of them. It's kind of, it's a strange kind of um, interpenetrating world. Um, Dyslexia, judging their pamphlet competition for a number of years, I found a number of good poets just because they've whittled them all down to the most wonderful ones in the North, usually. <laughs> so that's just, there's a sort of interpenetration between everybody. Um, but it can seem like a little cabal, but it's not. We're always looking for the new. I think we can say that, right? Because we mostly read all the magazines, we're always looking for the new voice, the fresh voice. And, that, and in many ways, that's why we exist, to find the new people, to bring them forth. Um, I've been there so many years now, I'm, I'm happy that I can say some of the people I first published in 1992, like Paul Henry, I've just published his ninth collection. And somebody like Darren Reese Jones, and this will be encouraging for all the new people out there, I turned her down three times in her 20s. Did you? Yeah, and I didn't take her book until she was like 30. And I think it was helpful for her because she really had to go through this process of whittling everything down into a very pure style. And uh, is a substantial character now, has a little press of her own. She's just started a new press, um, yes. Which is a wonderful little press. Yeah. So uh, very, very pleased about her. Um, she's done some wonderful critical books for Blood Axe, be beautiful critical books about a um, complete uh, mastery of the, the modern Modern Women Writing, she's amazing. This is my book, um, Judy Brown, uh, Crowd Sensations. This is her second collection, and it was just up for the second collection prize for, um, at uh, Ledbury, but it didn't actually win the prize. But I have to say nice things about Ledbury as well because I've been coming here every year, and it's kind of indispensable, the um, Ledbury Festival. Um, Judy is, uh, how I sort of found Judy is I subscribe to all the magazines, all the magazines that will be in this book, that's an important point. You can't get a poetry collection. I'm sorry. Yeah, they you. will you can't not get take a published them. collection without a track record in the literary magazines. magazines. So you do need to know who the literary magazines are and who the people editing them are. And yes. you'll find that there's lots of the names crop up over and over again, and most of them yes. will be Luke's name. <laughs> <laughs> be nice to the editor of the magazine. Be very nice to the editor of the magazine. Um, yeah, every time I picked up a magazine, there would be like one poem by Judy Brown for a while, and it was always the best poem. So that's why, oh, I just, and sometimes with women, I have to go track them down, which is the difference between, sometimes between men and women. The men will, <laughs> will give you like this beautifully kind of edited, all together manuscript, boom, here it is. And the women will just have poems in magazines and you ask them about it. A collection will be like, 
oh, maybe, I'm not ready yet. <laughs> I think so. And they're like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, I think so. Just send it to me. <laughs> but there's also this thing about developing as an artist. Unless you're a real um, prodigy, which you've probably had a few, mm-hmm. it's always surprising when you get somebody in their teens who can already write. That's, like, that's shocking to me. Because I think it takes, it's like a musical instrument. It takes about 10 years, I think. And that would be even maybe a conservative estimate. It takes about 10 years to become good, to understand your own voice and to be able to use it with authority. And uh, Judy had this kind of apprenticeship. Some people don't come to it until they're slightly older. Um, I, have a number, I have a number of people who were like retired and took up poetry. And, but it did take them, while they were retired, it took them five, six, seven years, even like English teachers. It took them that long to become, to find their own voice. Um, I think maybe... Rather than sexism now these days, because Bloodex published a number of like wonderful women poets, mm-hmm. and you, Luke mentioned a you know wonderful Sinead Morrissey who's terrific. Um, more pernicious than sexism is ageism, I think in literature. Um, the most successful book I had was from the 72-year-old linguistics professor, and he just he'd had poems in all the magazines, but because he was 72 years old and an academic, and a white male, it's like. Oh, Nobody was interested in publishing him because, oh, he has no profile. And, but his book won the cost of prize, and I was very surprised. And he ended up having this beautiful poet's speaking voice, so we did a CD. This is John Haynes a few years ago. And um, he had this beautiful book in Terza Rima, which is, if you're like a poetry wonk, Terza Rima is like a beautiful classical form, the form that Derek Walcott always uses. And it was about his time teaching in Africa. So it was a retrospective, but it was an absolutely stunning book. And I thought, well, who's going to buy this book like one person and a dog, you know, it would be like the audience for a royal cricket match. But I was wrong about that. I think quality will, like, move through. And you could have a beautiful, beautiful poem from somebody in their 90s. Like Danny Absey, his last book is a fantastic book. He was 92 when it came out. Um, so I always take a look out. I look out for that area. And uh, the market will often avoid those people. Um, and even the Saren Board, I have tr- problems with the Saren Board getting through, like, the older older white male academics are like the most difficult people now to publish because the market wants the, the new, the, the young person, the person who's going to have a long career, the person who's all over social media. But I don't think you necessarily have to do all the marketing song and dance. The thing you have to concentrate on as an author is just be good. Just write good poems. Write the, absolutely the best poems you can. And read as much as you can from all these like presses, all these wonderful presses. And of course, subscribe to Dyslexia Magazine and come along to Ledbury and hear all the wonderful poets read out loud. I always get like wonderful new ideas. How wonderful it is to see like Alicia Stallings here. I was always a big fan of hers. And also, um, you know, people that you you've read about like Tony too from America, Tony Hoagland. Tom Slinch. Um, yeah, people. You yeah, could, Tom Slinch. You Lynch. couldn't get in, could you? Yeah, Tom Slinch. Um, yeah, I couldn't get in to Thomas Lynch. There he is. Hello. <laughs> Um, next time, maybe, Thomas Lynch. Come back again. Um, so it's always amazing to hear poets read and to read their books. And uh, be persistent as well. Um, this will maybe annoy the other um, editors, but Marianne Moore once submitted to the same magazine 18 times. The same poem. The same poem? <laughs> the same poem. And the 18th time, edited? they took it. Did she change it in between submissions? I don't think she did. She really, she just she, she so really should have thought about it. <laughs> and stubborn. <laughs> But it's, and it's like Darren Reese Jones, three times she gave me her book. I'm about to publish somebody who also gave me their book like three times. And it's like the third time I just couldn't resist. But of course, that might be annoying for editors because you don't want to be getting the same books that you know you're not going to publish. Was it the Do same try book? other Was people. That the same book? No, times. they've changed it. They changed yeah. it. They kept working on it. But persistence can pay off. I mean, just keep trying. But first try all the magazines. 
try all magazines first. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Um, I do have copies of the book, if anybody wants one. Uh, right, last but no, by no means least is uh, Neil Astley, who you've probably all seen because he seems to be ubiquitous at Ledbury this year. Um, he's the founder and editor of Blood Axe Books and a legend in his own lifetime. Um, Blood Axe is one of the foremost poetry publishers, publishing 30 new titles a year and selling more copies overall than any other publisher in the UK of poetry. Bloodaxe authors have won virtually every prize going, including the T.S. Eliot, the Pulitzer and the Nobel Prize for Literature. Neil's also been a champion of women poets for many years and a supporter of dyslexia from the start. Um, like many indie publishers, Neil is also a fine writer, having published two collections of poetry and two novels, including the Whitbread shortlisted End of My Tether. Interesting fact about Neil, Neil is fascinated by sheep. His house is full of sheep-themed paraphernalia, including a full-size model in the living room. Can we have a recent book from you? Right. Um, well, before I cover the recent book, just to pick up on what um, Luke, and, Luke and Amy sheep. have said, um, and I, I also edited for Candlestick Press ten poems about sheep. <laughs> Did you really? Yes, yeah. Someone had to do it. <laughs> um, we publish, as, as Debbie said, 30 books a year, um, but they're always a mix of um, new books by the authors we've already published, American poets, translations, first collections, and so on. Um, there lies the difficulty, because our current authors are always producing new books, so it reduces the openings for the first collections. So we generally don't do more than three first collections a year. We get thousands of submissions, so... Um, it's always difficult to, um, to choose the three out of the thousands. Um, we have a lot of good... I turned down a lot of really good poets that I'm very happy to see picked up elsewhere, but we just don't have the capacity in our operation to do more than 30 books a year. Um, probably over the years, 50% of the poets we publish are by women, although latterly it's crept up to 60%. Yes simply by virtue of the quality of the work that comes in. And also, um, 10 to 15% of the books we publish are by writers from um, other backgrounds, black and Asian poets from Britain. Um, so in those two areas, we are reflecting the changes that have happened in the, literatures of, in the literature of Britain over the years. Um, not by positive discrimination, except for literary quality, we've ended up with that representative list, which I think is very important and democratic. Um, the book I've chosen to bring along, um, both in tribute to her and also because it, it demonstrates the kind of processes that Luke was talking about, about how poets come to the publisher and how the books are published. Helen Dunmore's last book, um, Inside the Wave. Um, <clears throat> I went to her, her funeral on <coughs> Wednesday, so I'm still a bit choked up about this. Um, I came across Helen in the mid-70s. I was working on Stan magazine as a co-editor, and she um, applied for a job as one of the other editors of the magazine. She came to Newcastle. We interviewed her, offered the job, and very wisely she turned it down. Um, <laughs> and I left Stan magazine shortly afterwards and set up Blood Axe. Um, I'd read her work in magazines, including Stan, and I kept in touch with her, and so I was starting a new press, and when she had a collection together, 
um, would she you know, offer it to me? And so in 1982, we published her first book, The Apple Fall. Um, that came about through her sending me just individual poems or batches of poems as, as she wrote them and as she thought they were good enough to send for publication. And that, in fact, became the pattern of how I worked with her over the years. Um, she would put together a small body of work, um, sort of two years or so before publication, and then the collection would build up over the years with her just posting individual poems in envelopes to me with a little note. And so gradually we would build up from half a collection to a full collection. And by working in that way, it meant that we could actually publish the book a bit earlier than we could normally because we could see how the book was building up. Um, she also, over the years, built up a, a reputation, a wonderful reputation as a novelist, but she always saw herself as a poet, first of all, and, and that she didn't like it when people started talk, didn't talk about her poetry, but just talked about her as a novelist. And so a few years ago, she sent anonymously one of her poems in for the National Poetry Competition, and one of the things about the National Poetry Competition and other competitions is it's all anonymous, it's purely based on the poem itself, and so she won the National Poetry Competition, and I think that was very affirming for her. Uh, people didn't treat her, take her seriously as a poet, I think, in many ways. So that was, and also it's a good demonstration that it's the good work that wins. Uh, two years ago, she sent me um, the body of work which was going towards Inside the Wave. Um, that time she was having treatment for cancer, and so much of the work related to illness, mortality. Um, <clears throat> we sort of had the book finished, as I thought, uh, last spring. Um, but then she started sending more poems in, um, relating to how she was feeling at that time. Um, and quite astonishing poems. I was just getting them by email. Um, I'd like to read a couple of them, I may, just because it would demonstrate it if I don't <coughs> burst into tears, which I did when I got this one as an email. Um, this one is called uh, my, Life <coughs> my Life's Stem Was Cut. My life's stem was cut, but quickly, lovingly, I was lifted up. I heard the rush of the tap, and I was set in water, in the blue vase, beautiful in lip and curve. And here I am, opening one petal as the tea cools. I wait while the sun moves and the bees finish their dancing. I know I am dying, but why not keep flowering as long as I can from my cut stem? And to get a poem like that as an email is quite, you know, something. Um, at that time, she discovered that um, her cancer hadn't been cured and they'd found a, another growth and she decided not to have chemotherapy because she was incurable, and so she just had to spend her final days at home. Um, and over that time, <laughs> she sent me a few more uh, poems like that, so that the book actually changed. Once she knew she was dying and only had less than a year to live, she added these further poems. Um, the book came out in April. She was very happy to have it. Um, as many of you know, she died uh, about three weeks ago. Uh, two weeks before she died, um, after the book had been published, she sent me another poem. And so we decided to add it to the, the reprint of the book, because the book had already sold out. 
Um, and this is the final poem. Um, <clears throat> hold out your arms, death. Hold out your arms for me. Embrace me. Give me your motherly caress. Through all this suffering, you have not forgotten me. You are the bearded iris that bakes its rhizomes beside the wall. Your scent flushes with loveliness, sherbet, pure iris, lovely <coughs> and intricate. I am the child who stands by the wall, not much taller than the iris. The sun covers me. The day waits for me in my funny dress. Death, you heap me into my arms, a basket of unripe damsons, red crisscross straps that button behind me. I don't know about school. My knowledge is for papery bud covers, tall stems and brown bees touching here and there, delicately before a swerve to the sun. Death stoops over me. Her long skirts slide. She knows I am shy. Even the puffed sleeves on my white blouse embarrass me. She will pick me up and hold me. So no one can see me. I will scrub my hair into hers. There the iris increases note by note as the wall gives back heat. Death. There's no need to ask. A mother will always lift a child as a rhizome must lift up a flower. So you settle me, my arms twining, thighs gripping your hips, where the swell of you is. As you push back my hair, which could do with a comb, but never mind, you murmur, we're nearly there. And this was Helen's tenth book, so... We followed Helen right from the very beginning, from her poems and magazines, right through to the last book. And over that time, you know, an editor develops a personal relationship with their poets. And also it shows <coughs> that poetry is all about living. It's about being human. It's about dying. It's about the whole of life. And that's the kind of poetry I like, you know, to publish, is poetry that matters to people. <clears throat> right, well, that, yes, she was a wonderful woman. She was a great supporter of Miss Lexia. And a great supporter of Ledbury as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And she uh, was chair of the, of the Society of Authors for many years, so she's a fantastic champion of uh, writers of all kinds. So, really sadly missed. But, so, but, for today's Helen Dunmore's. Um, I don't know where to go on for that. Um, at any point, do please ask questions from the audience. Um, be really happy to hear from you. Um, perhaps I should ask why you started. I'll start with you. Sure. Um, how, why are you involved in all of this? poetry publishing lark that can't pay you very much, I assume. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, but particularly, uh, not so much for Carcanet, but you run these three other magazines. <coughs> what motivates you? Um, I suppose uh, my first publishing was in 2010 when I moved to Newcastle after university in Norwich uh, and started working for, well, I moved to Newcastle and had nothing to do, and my, my approach to that was to find a job by getting the directory of local businesses and looking under publishing and phoning every number 
and asking me if I could come in and help uh, with unpaid. Um, I did that a few times, and eventually one of them, which was studio Alec Finley, said that I could come in for a day a week and help out. And his studio is an artist's studio. It's kind of text-based, and he's also a publisher, kind of fine press publishing. It's a very limited edition, uh, very uh, tactile, handmade editions. So I started doing a day a week there for free, um, and after a while, he started paying me a little bit, like, you know, like 40, 50 pounds a day or something. Uh, and uh, after another while, his manager decided to go away and get married and live in another country, so her position became vacant, and I uh, stepped into the role of manager of the studio, and my pay went up to 60 pounds a day. <laughs> uh, that was about a year in. <laughs> but you couldn't survive on that. No. Uh, I mean, I did, but no. Yes, I'm no. I'm here today. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have any other income. So why um, were you doing it? Why did you do it? Um, I kind of um, wish... Why didn't you get a proper job? Any of us. I, I, I <laughs> need the, uh, that feeling of doing something uh, significant. In a way, I mean, why does one write? It's the same answer, I think, to be uh-huh. engaged with something that matters to people, as Neil was saying. Um, and the sense of doing something that isn't, that doesn't go to nothing. I mean, of the, you know, I think I had a bar job at some point between university and, and starting and for Alec, and there's that great feeling of pointlessness about it. So I think books have always the bar, felt... The bar job. Yeah. yeah. So on the, and then books are the opposite of that. They sort of represent something that uh, has meaning and value in a kind of philosophical and soulful way. Um, uh, do, do, are you paid by Carcanet? Yeah, of Pro- course. Pro- yeah. Well, not, not of course. Large numbers of independent presses sure, yeah. can't afford to pay their editors anything at all. No, and yeah. su- they subsidise their own presses out of their own pockets, and a lot of them have day jobs. So this is your day job, basically. Carcanet Carcanet. Is, yeah. I, I moved to Carcanet in 2015, at the beginning of 2015, and the six of us, uh, the director, Michael Schmidt, uh, there's marketing, sales, finance, reception, and me, the editor. Um, everyone gets paid, not, not any great... Uh, figures, but um, enough to survive on, and people, you know, everyone lives off their wage. Um, we get Arts Council funding, which is important for that to happen. Um, and I also run Sine Wave Peak, which is a tiny, tiny poetry press, and I don't get paid for that. That's oh, purely I didn't out of love. That. Yes, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I survive off Carcanet, but again, it's we're not talking anything impressive, and no one in the company is, is making any any great money off it. So um, Clark connects your day job, but you also, and that subsidises all of this other activity, yeah. running running independent presses, yeah. basically. Yeah. Any free money goes back into doing s- stupidly uneconomic projects and magazines. <laughs> <laughs> and this is so typical, really, um, which is why you know the independent press sector is such an, an amazingly vibrant thing, because it means that individual people bring their passion and uh, to what they do, um, but also, uh, it's precarious, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I do have to say, Saren is the, the poetry is our best-selling genre. You're joking? No, I'm yeah, not joking. Well, that's down to you then, <laughs> isn't it? Well done. Keeps us going, really. Uh, don't ask me how we did that. Because Saren also publishes fiction. Yeah, right? fiction yeah. and non-fiction. Yeah. Has that changed? Did it used to be fiction? Uh, yes, for a while. Mm. Our fiction editor uh, went off and started her own company. 
Um, YA fiction, Penny Thomas. And for a while, yes, but fiction can also lose as much money as poetry. It's just the digital age dawning is, makes it tough for everybody in the printed word. So. But you, you, you earn a salary, do you? I earn a salary, but I'm still only paid like four days a week. They've recently started paying me for another day a week, but I work every day. So it's, I don't know where there is another day. So a week you tonight. you subsidise. I do. Yes. You subsidise Sarah and Press with your with your labour labour. Yeah. And how about you? Just, I'm paid five days business. a week, but I work seven days a yes. week. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And also, you're quite irreplaceable. I would have thought. I mean, that's the difficulty when you become really good and established. Is and if if people are supporting the press with it with free labour quite hard to replace those people, isn't it? People who are going to be that passionate and that good. You keep an eye out for your successors. <laughs> I'm just hoping, I'm just looking for a woman to like do what I do and it's not that easy. It's it's getting better though. People like uh, Emma Press run by yes. women and yes, yes. there are a few more out there. There are more, far more women editors out there. Do you get many interns and uh, helpers yes, coming? Yes, we actually pay our interns. Okay. Yes, we do. Yeah. We get interns from the local authority. Yeah, we get some very good interns as well. There's, there would be room for more people in publishing, just the way there's, there's so much good work that we can't publish. Mm. It's astonishing, really, how much really good work there's no space for. Mm. And um, how, did, how did you get started? Um, was that you left Stand and thought, I want to I do left it. Stand, and um, I then worked for a year for the Wordsworth Trust. Then I went and did an MLIT, um, which I never finished, on Anglo-Saxon poetry. And then I was working in a bookshop part-time. Uh, so that was the first four years. Um, and four years on, um, I then got Simon Thurskin as co-director. And we got an office. And we had our first employee. Um, but I was still working part-time in the bookshop. So I was paying my staff before I was paying me. Um, <laughs> And what, what motivates the two of you? Well, uh, opening up poetry to a wider readership, publishing poetry for everyone. Um, it's like what Grayson Perry says. He says, I want my art to be as accessible as possible, but also not dumbed down at all. Mm. I want it to be wildly popular, but not dumbed down. And I think it's possible for that mm. to happen. Mm. See, initially, when I started, there were very few poets published from the north of England. Um, the whole flourishing of European and American publication um, had sort of stopped after the 60s. Carcanet was one of the few imprints that was still doing that. So there was a lot of poets I wanted to publish from around the world. And very few women were being published at that time. And so the first few years were, first of all, opening up poetry for the northern writers and then opening up poetry for the women and then latterly opening poetry up for writers from other backgrounds. So over the years, we've kind of changed the make up of the list to try and correct all those imbalances and then we started doing uh, with Staying Alive which was published in 2002 um, that really made a difference to the um, strength of financial strength of the operation uh, that's an anthology, most of our books you know, barely sell a thousand copies, uh, well known authors might, might sell three or four thousand um, we've got some authors who've sold twenty, thirty thousand Staying Alive has sold a quarter of a million and then the successor and the other anthologies in the trilogy have sold, getting on for 100,000 each. And so the sales of the anthologies help support, along with the Arts Council funding, the publication of the collections 
that sell very slowly as well as very few. The other problem is books that take years to even cover their costs. Uh, so that's another important part of the process, not just taking on uh, books which are totally risky by authors who are totally unknown, but being able to actually uh, keep those books in print for a number of years until they finally cover their costs and then hopefully do more collections by those writers. Um, so a bestseller in the poetry world is about 3,000 copies, isn't it? As an individual it's collection. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas a bestseller, of course, of a novel is something like 30,000. Different scales. Mm, the scale is very different, yeah. But interestingly, our best-selling poet now is Intiaz Darka. Where, mm. And we published her right from the beginning when she was totally unknown when she was living in India. She got a few poems on the GCSE syllabus. Oh, that helps, Started coming it? here and then started doing reading, schools readings. And She's very engaging. So very engaged, really. yeah. And so initially she was total risk. Her first book took ten years probably to sell out uh, and be reprinted. But the latest book, that sold about 8,000 copies now, I think, since so two years. We try to keep people on mm. and have faith in them. But what this also means, of course, that as a poet, you can't possibly make a living out of selling copies of your books. Mary Oliver says you need to learn to live on what a chicken lives on every chicken <laughs> feed. Yeah. Well, well, most people who, who are published poets are published mm -hmm. reviewers or they teach. Yeah, they do other things. They do other mm -hmm. kinds of work. They don't... It, the old pattern of doing a day job where you do something unrelated, like Simon Armitage was a preparation officer mm. when, when I published his first collection, um, that seems to mostly have gone out now, where, like in America, poets have gone over much more to teaching. To, teaching, university law. Yeah. Yes, my, my partner is um, W.N. Herbert, and he teaches creative writing at Newcastle University, and that's where his money comes from, basically. Teaching. Not from... They're the patrons, aren't they, these yeah. days? Universities. Mm -hmm. A whole lot of the poets, if you can get them to keep their humanities departments. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, yes, go ahead. Well, I mean, there are all kinds of poets. Some are personal, some are, you might call it impersonal in the, in the tradition of T.S. Eliot. You know, um, one of the things we do as a publisher is we feel there's good work in all the different fields. So we publish, say, Benjamin Zephaniah, um, performance poet, and at the other end of the extreme, we publish J.H. Prynne, who's Cambridge High modernist. Um, very impersonal, um, but still engaging intellectually. Um, so there's room for all kinds of poetry, I think. And I think we all publish a full range, don't we? 
Mm -hmm. I was just talking to, I think it was Chloe in the back, about um, publishing, um, understanding that the prose poem was actually a poem. It took me a while to, like, get on board there, but somebody had to talk me into it. So I try to, one of the reasons that I'm still an editor is I really try to, like, learn new things all the time, be open to the new. I'd really like a feature on prose poems for this. Oh, okay. If you're writing that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really okay. interesting, yeah. Someone was talking to me about writing a series of prose poems yesterday. Yes. Uh, could you quantify what you look for in terms of number of poems in a pamphlet, um, a collection, and an anthology if those last two are different? Um, well, Carknet doesn't do pamphlets, um, but... Uh, I suppose the nearest thing would be the, the magazine peer review that we run or the anthology New Poetries. Um, like our, our authors have a... Like the idea would be that we find our authors in a magazine, as was mentioned earlier, then they'd go perhaps into New Poetries anthology and then they're established as a poet proper with a first collection. First collection would be ordinarily between 60 and 80 or maybe up to 100 pages uh, depending on the kind of poetry uh, being written. Um, it's easier to give a page count rather than a poem count because poems can vary so much in length. Um, 64 pages, I think, is quite a common uh, amount for a first collection because you can't go much slimmer with a proper book without it being a pamphlet. Um, of course, there are publishers that do pamphlets and therefore perhaps 32 pages would be something you'd see as a kind of um, first, second or third pamphlet. There are prizes that have minimum page counts I think publishers are aware of when they're doing collections with poets. I think the T.S. Eliot prize has a minimum uh, 48 pages. Um, so if you're interested in getting poets into uh, contention for prizes, it's good to be aware of the page count minimum requirements. Um, I've done first collections that are 100, 120 pages, but... Um, I think people do feel that it's uh, out of the ordinary to have such a, a, a long book to begin with. But I was talking about this to someone yesterday who's a penguin, uh, who's a Faber new poet, and who's wondering about about exactly this and whether 100 pages was too long. Personally, I don't think it is, but um, there are economies as well. So if the publisher's taking a risk, they take less of a risk with a smaller book than if they print a 120-page book. I don't know whether you two have other thoughts on that. It's a tech thing. The 64 pages isn't even printers working. And then you had seven prelims or whatever, the seven initial pages, title page, half title page, um, printer's details, and dedication page, and then you have a page of acknowledgments. So that ends up being about 54 pages. That would be a kind of minimum first collection. But I go up to 72 sometimes, depending on how long I've had the manuscript. And, uh, you know, they've had a chance to write another ten good poems or whatever. They're going to be mad at me if I don't put them in. So, Our competition has a limit of 25 pages. Uh, our pamphlet competition, yeah. Yeah, I, I've had some collections of over 100 pages submitted. And usually what I try and do is sift it down if I possibly can. Um, there was one poet I published. I thought there was something there, but there was so much. And I was so frustrated by it that I ended up going through and just chucking out all the ones that I was indifferent to or didn't think worked and ended up with actually a 64-page collection. 
and, and, and sent her the list of it, and she said, brilliant, I think that's perfect. And yeah. Sometimes when people have published a lot in magazines, they think that well, everything that's been in a magazine should be in the be book. In. But that's not necessarily the case. You know, a book has to work as an entity. It has to be coherent. Um, anthologies, most of the anthologies we publish are drawn from existing work from published books or from magazines. So we don't generally take submissions for anthologies unless it's something like the Raving Beauties anthology where they were soliciting poems for that book. Um, am, am I right that you don't want to see when people are submitting... Um, collections to you, you'd rather see a selection of poems first. We, we, we put a, a, a submission. Well, we have an advice on our website where, just to speed up the process, if you send a, a, a dozen poems as a kind of sampler, we can turn it around far more quickly than a full collection. A full collection may be sitting, you know, in the corner of the room for months. The read pile. Um, <laughs> but if, uh, but if we get a, a dozen poems, we can usually respond quite quickly saying yes or no, well, maybe or no. What you're saying is, can I see the full collection, yeah. aren't you, at yeah. that point? We don't like electronic submissions, do you? No, we, we don't it's take just, the, it's just not manageable, We'd never be able to, like, do no. it. No. To take the, so I'm afraid it's still, still, still stamped addressed envelopes, please. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah. I'll, I'll come to all of you. Uh, yes, yes. This is just wonderful it's great to meet the person who's responsible for staying and being Thank you so much for those anthologies. Um, you've mentioned um, getting the new hands published in magazines and you've mentioned competitions in relation to pamphlets and other things. What about competitions for individual poems? We run a competition for individual poems. I've only taken like one poet because of a competition, and that was Tiffany Atkinson. And I heard her read the poem in the competition. Um, it was a Cardiff International Poetry Competition. I thought, there's something really interesting about that woman. Miss Nap, she publishes with Blood Axe, <laughs> but she kind of she's a very interesting poet. But it's not it's kind of rare to find somebody in a competition, don't you think? Yeah. No, that they will mm. show up every once mm. in a while, like Talent Dunmore, and if, if there's some mm. a really good voice. But yeah. competitions, I think the competitions mm. are a little bit pernicious. It depends, it depends yeah. on the competition, I hope, because we publish our competition winners and I think they're fantastic. Well, yeah. But then you're published mm. in mislexia, you see. But if, but it, but it depends <laughs> on the, yeah. depends but, on the filtering mm. process. So but then you, you're, if, back, you're back yeah. into a magazine. But know? if you win one of the big competitions, that does draw attention to your work, does, certainly. Yeah. And a number of poets over the years have been published hot on the heels of winning one of the big competitions, particularly the national. Yeah. Um, Amalie Rodrigo, who's reading later today, I was judging the Poetry London competition, uh, again, anonymously, and that's where I came across her work for the first time. I gave her second prize in it. Um, and then later she sent a collection. Um, so that's what, as it were, drew her to my attention initially. Does it, does it impress you if it's on a CV, you know, yeah. like one first prize? If it's a big one, yeah. 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 But so, sometimes you get a whole list of all the... But there are so many competitions out mm. there. There are hundreds and hundreds of competitions, so... But it, but it is a way of getting your work judged anonymously, purely on the quality of the work, based on the taste of the judge. I would just enter how big the prize is, and if you know the judge, <laughs> you know their taste. And There's some presses uh, who have magazines and have anthologies also have competitions, so it can still be another meaningful kind of narrative about 
getting to know a, a particular press that you're interested in. Carcanet has just started, well, PN Review is just starting a poetry competition. Um, and that's just another way that we can kind of uh, draw poets through the kind of funnel of the press, ultimately. It's a way of finding new writers that um, aren't currently in PN Review or with Carcanet. So it's, it's a, I think the, probably the best way to think about competitions might be, uh, again, by a particular ecosystem of a, of a press or a magazine that you're interested in. Obviously, there are many, most of the large competitions aren't connected in that way to presses or magazines, but like you were saying, there's so many competitions these days that a lot of them do belong to a publisher. Another thing about competitions is that they do have a deadline and they do make you finish a piece of work and send it out. And whether you, whether you succeed or fail, you then have that poem, don't you? that you've really worked on, and then you can send it somewhere else. To a magazine. Whatever happens, send it to a magazine, mm. yes, which is perhaps, uh, <coughs> it'll have a more lasting mm. life if it's published. Also, um, I think if you're out there, you don't know anything about the quality of work, yeah. and the work competition, yeah. and the British competition. Yeah. And actually, that's the main reason for the single poem. Yeah. 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 Anywhere, somebody yeah. like this. Somebody like this, yeah. yes, indeed. Yeah. So you had got to ask a question. Yeah. Um, I, you touched us all with Helen Tamba. Uh, and thinking about how many how many of the reading community would read poems or book when we talk about Helen Tamba. Uh, they would read the book of her because it's more accepted <coughs> in, in the reading population. We'd read more novels and poetry. Uh, in my knowledge, perhaps mm. I'm wrong. But her greatness was a to, to to write things like even the siege of, of St. Isabel, to take you in a lyrical way yeah. to, to, to explain suffering. Mm. Uh, it's as great as, as good poetry. But my question is, is, uh, is about, um, it's talking to everyone, in, in, a, in an anthology, when you choose a subject or something that you have uh, to put together in uh, staying alive, um, what brings you as an editor to put an anthology under a name and to collect the poems under that name that would relate to it? Is it uh, anything to do with what the public is waiting for today? With, uh, or is it something to do with uh, some um, experience of the nation or uh, is it being through that you think those poems would appeal? Um, uh, well, and, and, and yeah. for the particular uh, uh, poems that translated into English to, to create an uh, English written anthology, um, would you select things that are much more classical and universal in order to put it through to an English reading, um, Turkish, Israeli, um, Well, I mean, Staying Alive was published in 2002. Um, not long after 9-11. It's also published at a time when there was a lot of debate in the press about poetry is irrelevant, it doesn't mean anything, you know, it's, it's useless. Um, why do people read poetry? And it was an attempt to show all the kind of, the readers out there who didn't read poetry that poetry might be for them, as well as to show poetry readers a wider range of poetry than they normally receive by actually having poetry from all over the world and 
including translations. You know, there was that whole thing, people didn't used to read translations very much because they don't think they're getting the real poem. If you mix them all into one, you get something that, um, that the poetry reader finds um, it works for them and also that draws in, say, readers of the literary novel, um, people that are interested in theatre, people interested in cinema, art and all the other areas of culture but don't read poetry. And that's how Staying Alive came about and was actually marketed to all the different areas of culture, you know, Tate Modern, um, Granter and so on, to try and draw readers to poetry by showing them through this book that poetry could mean something to them. Um, and we found actually that that book has led people to reading the other poets in the book. Um, and then it's led to publishing the further poems in the series. And there's going to be another one next year called The Human Factor. So we've finished the trilogy now, but now there's got to be a sequel to the trilogy. You have to think of a new way of... Yeah, of but, but in terms of the, po the poems that go in, um, it's a very intuitive thing. I, I just know when I read through a collection, I might find one poem, and I think that's got to go in. And I might read through a collection by a poet I like, admire, but I don't find that kind of poem in it. But... I, I read hundreds of books for those anthologies and I just know immediately I find the poem that goes in and I mark it, put it to one side and I end up with thousands of photocopies of those poems and then you sift it down you start finding the poems talking to one another in a way and it starts finding its own structure but it all starts from the poems It takes longer than you think to do an anthology I'm trying to work on one now too you just have to keep sifting and sifting. Here's where I'm going to be naughty and talk about it. Can I, can I mention one other book that I did? A, You're going to do Writer well Brotherhood? Ago. No, this one. Oh, I yes. Did, I did this about ten years ago with the wonderful writer Eva Salzman. And this has been really popular. But this shows my taste in that it's about it's women's work. But it's women's work from all over the world. And um, there is a sense that I think all editors, that we want the poem that's going to kill us, don't we? We just want to mm -hmm. be, like, flattened by the poem. We want to see something that we've never seen before and we want it to be full of emotion and do something that we've never seen. Take the top of her head off or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think we've got about three minutes left. Um, okay. can, I, can I just say one more thing? In relation to submitting poems, to competitions, to presses, uh, to magazines, submit to the magazines and presses who, who publish the writers you admire because that is a sure way to actually see how tuned in they might be to your work. Um, don't submit to competitions judged by people whose work you don't like because they won't like yours either. I mean, that's just very sort of... <laughs> taste. Taste, yeah. Uh, you had a question. Amy was the only one who's actually touched on the plight of the ageing white male. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as, as an ageing yeah. white male from the south to boot, who's actually yeah. working on his fifth collection, the four collections by different publishers. Wow. slightly yeah. uh, class, shall we say, than you think. Um, Paul. Uh, what, is, what are the opportunities for someone like myself? Wow. It's difficult, particularly if you've had books out with other presses, then oh, we yeah, kind yeah, of wonder yeah. why you've left the press. Or, You're you obviously know. doing all right, though. But yeah, you've, you've had books out. Yeah. But it's still, it's um, going to be hard well, for you. you know, for example, I was with Pindrop Press, my second collection. Okay. Kind of a boutique press, and they were sort of taking on new people each time. You know, so that was there for the people, a different publisher. I'm, trying to, I'm just trying to think of like the older white men that I've taken on recently and what they do that's different. Um, 
It's all on the quality of the verse, isn't it? I like well, formal. Where, where would you want to be? You would want to be with what you'd call a big. You want to be. With... Well, I published Maitreya Bandhu a couple of years ago. He's Buddhist, has a big following in the Buddhist community, and he'd won lots of the competitions. Do you have a blog? Hmm. I'm, t- I'm doing somebody right now, like older white male has four books out, yeah. because they have a really interesting blog that I read all the time. You need to start a blog go. called Older White, Old white Male yeah. Poet Blog. <laughs> Good luck to you. I know how hard it is. Well, I think we have to close up. I think we have to close, yes. Yes, so, waves. Um, but um, certainly I will be at, on our stall another couple of hours. And um, I think these three people are going to be at the back near their books, perhaps, if you want to talk, talk to them some more. Or if there's no room, then come, right. to, come and lurk around. There's benches outside. Now, so. becoming event manager now, um, <laughs> I need to present our participants. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Gregory Bowles.